Welcome to Exploring the Catechism of the Council of Trent in a Year. I'm Mark Langley, and today is day 100 in our exploration of this wonderful catechism. We are going to continue our study of the second commandment of the Decalogue that we find in chapter 20 of Exodus, verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And the catechism uh, spoke about the fact that this commandment has a positive part and a negative part. And the positive part is about the precept that we need to honor God's name. And it talked about various ways of honoring God's name as through the public profession of faith, respect for the word of God, through praise and thanksgiving and prayer, and finally through oaths. Then it talked about the meaning of an oath as being nothing less, nothing else than to call God to witness to something. And uh, so today we are going to continue where we left off concerning the kinds of oaths. And so we will begin there in the subheading in the Catechism. Oaths are affirmatory and promissory. And so we begin reading. Oaths are of two kinds. The first is an affirmatory oath and is taken when we religiously affirm anything past or present. Such was the affirmation of the Apostle in his epistle to the Galatians. Behold, before God I lie not. That's in uh, St. Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 1, verse 20. The second kind, to which combinations may be reduced, is called promissory. It looks to the future and is taken when we promise and affirm for certain that such or such a thing will be done. Such was the oath of David, who, swearing by the Lord his God, promised to Bethsabee, his wife, that her son Solomon should be heir to his kingdom and successor to his throne. And we read about that in Third uh, Kings uh, chapter 1, verse 17 and verse 30. Although to constitute an oath it is sufficient to call God to witness, yet to constitute a holy and just oath many other conditions are required, which should be carefully explained. These, as St. Jerome observes, are briefly enumerated in the words of Jeremiah. Thou shalt swear, as the Lord liveth, in truth and in judgment and in justice. That's in Jeremiah's book 4, chapter 4, verse 2. The Catechism continues with the first condition, truth. Truth, then, holds the first place in an oath. What is asserted must be true, and he who swears must believe what he swears to be true, being influenced not by rash judgment or mere conjecture, but by solid reasons. Truth is a condition not less necessary in a promissory than in an affirmatory oath. He who promises must be disposed to perform and fulfill his promise at the appointed time. As no conscientious man will promise to do what he considers opposed to the most holy commandments and will of God, so having promised and sworn to do, to do what is lawful, he will never fail to adhere to his engagement, unless perhaps by a change of circumstances it should happen that, if he wished to keep faith and observe his promises, he must incur the displeasure and enmity of God. That truth is necessary to an oath, David also declares in these words, He that sweareth to his neighbor, and deceiveth not. The second condition, judgment. The second condition of an oath is judgment. An oath is not to be taken rashly and inconsiderately, but after deliberation and reflection. When about to take an oath, therefore, one should first consider whether he is obliged to take it, and should weigh well the whole case, reflecting whether it seems to call for an oath. 
Many other circumstances of time, place, etc. are also to be taken into consideration, and one should not be influenced by love or hatred, or any other passion, but by the nature and necessity of the case. Unless this careful consideration and reflection precede an oath, an oath must be rash and hasty, and of this character are the irreligious affirmations of those who on the most unimportant and trifling occasions swear without thought or reason from the influence of bad habit alone. This we see practiced daily everywhere among buyers and sellers. The latter to sell at the highest price, the former to purchase at the cheapest rate, make no scruple to strengthen with an oath their praise or dispraise of the goods on sale. Since therefore judgment and prudence are necessary, and since children are not able, on account of their tender years, to understand and judge accurately, Pope St. Cornelius decreed that an oath should be not be administered to children before puberty, that is, before their fourteenth year. The third condition, justice. The last condition of an oath is justice, which is especially requisite in promissory oaths. Hence, if a person swear to do what is unjust or lawful, he sins by taking the oath, and adds sin to sin by executing his promise. Of this the gospel supplies an example. King Herod, bound by a rash oath, gave to a dancing girl the head of John the Baptist as a reward for her dancing. Such was also the oath taken by the Jews, who, as we read in the Acts of the Apostles, bound themselves by oath not to eat until they had killed Paul. These explanations having been given, there can be no doubt that they who observe the above conditions and who guard their oaths with these qualities as with bulwarks may swear with a safe conscience. This is easily established by many proofs, for the law of God, which is pure and holy, commands, Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God, and shalt serve him only, and thou shalt swear by his name. All they, writes David, shall be praised that swear by him. These scriptures also inform us that the most holy apostles, the lights of the church, sometimes made use of oaths, as appears from the epistles of the apostle. Even the angels sometimes swear. The angel, writes St. John in the Apocalypse, swore by him who lives forever. Nay, God himself, the Lord of angels, swears, as we read in many passages of the Old Testament, has confirmed his promises with an oath. This he did to Abraham and to David. The Lord hath sworn, and he will not repent. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In fact, if we consider the whole matter attentively and examine the origin and purpose of an oath, it can be no difficult matter to explain the reasons why it is a laudable act. An oath has its origin in faith, by which men believe God to be the author of all truth, who can never deceive others nor be deceived, to whose eyes all things are naked and open, who, in fine, superintends all human affairs with an admirable providence and governs the world. Filled with this faith, we appeal to God as a witness to the truth, as a witness whom it would be wicked and impious to distrust. With regard to the end of an oath, its scope and intent is to establish the justice and innocence of man and to terminate disputes and contests. This is the doctrine of the Apostle in his epistle to the Hebrews. And if we just pause for a moment to look at the uh, letter to the Hebrews in chapter 6, verse 13, uh, we read, For God making promise to Abraham, because he had no one greater by whom he might swear, swore by himself, saying, Unless blessing I shall bless thee, and multiplying I shall multiply thee. 
and so patiently enduring he obtained the promise, for men swear by one greater than themselves, and an oath for confirmation is the end of all their controversy. So that's the passage that the Catechism is referring to from St. Paul to the Hebrews. And the Catechism continues with an objection against oaths. Nor does this doctrine at all clash with these words of the Redeemer recorded in St. Matthew. You have heard that it was said to them of old, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but thou shalt perform thy oaths to the Lord. But I say to you not to swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is the throne of God, neither by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your speech be yea, yea, no, no, and that which is over and above these is of evil. The Catechism answers this. It says, It cannot be asserted that these words condemn oaths universally and under all circumstances, since we have already seen that the Apostle and our Lord himself made frequent use of them. The object of our Lord is rather to reprove the perverse opinion of the Jews, who had persuaded themselves that the only thing to be avoided in an oath was a lie. Hence, in matters the most trivial and unimportant, they did not hesitate to make frequent use of oaths and to exact them from others. This practice the Redeemer condemns and reprobates and teaches that an oath is never to be taken unless necessity require it. For oaths have been instituted on account of human frailty. They are really the outcome of evil, being a sign either of the inconstancy of him who takes them, or of the obstinacy of him who refuses to believe without them. However, an oath can be justified by necessity. When our Lord says, let your speech be yea, yea, no, no, he evidently forbids the habit of swearing in familiar conversation and on trivial matters. He therefore admonishes us particularly against being too ready and willing to swear, and this should be carefully explained and impressed on the minds of the faithful, that countless evils grow out of the unrestrained habit of swearing is proved by the evidence of Scripture and the testimony of the Most Holy Fathers. Thus we read in Ecclesiasticus, Let not thy mouth be accustomed to swearing, for in it there are many falls. And again, a man that sweareth much shall be filled with iniquity, and a scourge shall not depart from his house. In the works of St. Basil and St. Augustine against lying, much more can be found on this subject. So there the Catechism teaches us, according to the, the proper way of interpreting Scripture, that we can't use one Scripture and interpret it in a way that contradicts other Scriptures. So when we see God himself swearing, or St. Paul swearing, uh, we can't think that they're breaking this other part where it says, let thy speech be yea, yea, no, no, and that which is over and above these is of evil. That passage from Matthew, Matthew's gospel, cannot be um, taken to mean uh, never swear at all. So let us continue. Now the Catechism talks about the negative part of this commandment. So far we have considered what this commandment requires. It now remains to speak of what it prohibits, namely to take the name of God in vain. It is clear that he who swears rashly and without deliberation commits a grave sin. That this is a most serious sin is declared by the words, Thou shalt not take the name of thy God in vain, which seem to assign the reason why this crime is so wicked and heinous, namely that it derogates from the majesty of him whom we profess to recognize as our Lord and our God. This commandment therefore forbids to swear falsely 
because he who does not shrink from so great a crime as to appeal to God to witness falsehood offers a grievous injury to God, charging him either with ignorance, as though the truth of any matter could be unknown to him, or with malice and dishonesty, as though God could bear testimony to falsehood. Among false swearers are to be numbered not only those who affirm as true what they know to be false, but also those who swear to what is really true, believing it to be false. For since the essence of a lie consists in speaking contrary to one's belief and conviction, these persons are evidently guilty of a lie and of perjury. On the same principle, he who swears to that which he thinks to be true, but which is really false, also incurs the guilt of perjury, unless he has used proper care and diligence to arrive at a full knowledge of the matter. Although he swears according to his belief, he nevertheless sins against this commandment. Again, he who binds himself by an oath to the performance of anything not intending to fulfill his promise, or having had the intention neglect its performance, is guilty of the same sin. This equally applies to those who, having bound themselves to God by vow, neglect its fulfillment. This commandment is also violated if justice, which is one of the three conditions of an oath, be wanting. Hence, he who swears to commit a mortal sin, for example, to perpetrate murder, violates this commandment, even though he speaks seriously and from his heart. And his oath possesses what we before pointed out as the first condition of every oath, that is, truth. To these are to be added oaths sworn through a sort of contempt, such as an oath not to observe the evangelical counsels, such as celibacy and poverty. None, it is true, are obliged to embrace these divine counsels, but by swearing not to observe them, one contemns and despises them. This commandment is also sinned against, and judgment is violated when one swears to what is true and what he believes to be true, if his motives are light conjectures and far-fetched reasons. For notwithstanding his truth, such an oath is not unmixed with a sort of falsehood, seeing that he who swears with such indifference exposes himself to extreme danger of perjury. To swear by false gods is likewise to swear falsely. What more opposed to truth than to appeal to lying and false deities as to the true God? Scripture, when it prohibits perjury, says, Thou shalt not profane the name of thy God, thereby forbidding all irreverence towards all other things to which, in accordance with his commandment, reverence is due. Of this nature is the word of God, the majesty of which has been revered not only by the pious, but also sometimes by the impious, as is narrated in Judges of Eglon, king of the Moabites. But he who, to support heresy in the teaching of the wicked, distorts the sacred scriptures from their genuine and true meaning, is guilty of the greatest injury to the word of God, and against this crime we are warned by these words of the Prince of the Apostles. There are certain things hard to be understood, which the unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures to their own destruction. It is also a foul and shameful contamination of the scripture that wicked men pervert the words and sentences which it contains, and which should be honored with all reverence, turning them to profane purposes such as scurrility, fable, vanity, flattery, detraction, divination, satire, and the like, crimes which the Council of Trent commands to be severely punished. In the next place, as they honor God who in their affliction implore his help, so they who do not invoke his aid deny him due honor. And these David rebukes when he says, They have not called upon the Lord. They trembled for fear where there was no fear. 
Still more enormous is the guilt of those who with impure and defiled lips dare to curse or blaspheme the holy name of God, that name which is to be blessed and praised above measure by all creatures, or even the names of the saints who reign with him in glory. So atrocious and horrible is this crime that the sacred scriptures sometimes when speaking of blasphemy use the word blessing. And that's a very interesting point there. The example in the footnote is the third book of Kings, chapter 21, verse 13, and the book of Job, chapter 1, verse 11, where it says the expression to bless is a euphemism, meaning to bid farewell to, to neglect, to curse. Hence the Hebrew barak of Job, chapter 1, verse 11, is translated by the Septuagint, kaka enenoesan. And so apparently the uh, scriptures use the word blessing sometimes as a euphemism in place of to blaspheme. And now we finish up the final section of this part of the Catechism concerning the Second Commandment. As, however, the dread of punishment has often a powerful effect in checking the tendency to sin, the pastor, in order the more effectively to move the minds of men and the more easily to induce to an observance of this commandment, should diligently explain the remaining words, which are, as it were, its appendix. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that shall take the name of the Lord his God in vain. In the first place, the pastor should teach that with very good reason has God joined threats to this commandment. From this is understood both the grievousness of sin and the goodness of God towards us, since far from rejoicing in man's destruction, he deters us by these salutary threats from incurring his anger doubtless in order that we may experience his kindness rather than his wrath. The pastor should urge and insist on this consideration with greatest earnestness, in order that the faithful may be made sensible of the grievousness of the crime, may detest it still more, and may employ increased care and caution to avoid its commission. He should also observe how prone men are to the sin, since it was not sufficient to give the command, but also necessary to accompany it with threats. The advantages to be derived from this thought are indeed incredible, for as nothing is more injurious than a listless security, so the knowledge of our own weakness is most profitable. He should next show that God has appointed no particular punishment. The threat is general. It declares that whoever is guilty of this crime shall not escape unpunished. The various chastisements, therefore, with which we are every day visited, should warn us against this sin. It is easy to conjecture that men are afflicted with heavy calamities because they violate this commandment. And if these things are called to their attention, it is likely that they will be more careful for the future. Deterred, therefore, by a holy dread, the faithful should use every exertion to avoid this sin. If, for every idle word that men shall speak, they shall render an account on the day of judgment, what shall we say of those heinous crimes which involve great contempt of the divine name? And there we finish with a passage from Matthew chapter 12, verse 26, that we're going to be accountable for every idle word. And so therefore, how much more heinous is it to uh, violate the second commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And so we will finish there. Uh, that's the end of the Catechism's treatment on the second commandment. So thank you for joining me in this episode of Exploring the Catechism of the Council of Trent in a Year. I'm Mark Langley, and we look forward to exploring the third commandment uh, in our next episode.